We'll turn your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of John. Uh, if you're using a Legacy Standard Bible, which I did see some floating around there, it would be on page 1,457. The wonderful thing about uh, the first edition of a Bible is that it's all the same page number. So, um, so John chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to pray then, ask the Lord for help. Then we will walk our way through this narrative. And, uh, and then I'll seek to draw out some uh, very important truths in light of who Jesus is. So John chapter 18, Gospel of John. If you're in 1 John, you made a wrong turn. So you need to find the Gospel of John. Uh, again, page 1457. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often gathered there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the, the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way in order that the word which he had spoken would be fulfilled. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me shall I not drink it. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him for help. O Lord, open the eyes of our heart that we might see what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is his power toward us who believe? Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your law, O Lord. We need your help. I pray, Lord, those who come this morning dead in trespasses and sins, might you quicken them, awaken their hearts before you. Those who do know you, Lord, might we grow into greater maturity as we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. One of the very few things that are good that Hollywood has produced are those Chronicles of Narnia movies. Putting the words of Claude Staples Lewis onto the big screen. 
and I'm one of those guys who watched the movies but hasn't really read the books. But one of the beautiful portrayals that, that we see in those films and also in those books is the, the Christ figure that runs throughout those chronicles, namely Aslan. And because it's such a beautiful portrait that I think encapsulates uh, the glory of Christ as he unfolds to us in the scripture. This powerful king as Aslan is when he roars all bow before him. But also this wonderful, tender picture of children running their hands through his mane, approaching him in his kindness and gentleness. Well, one of the scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia is an encounter that Lucy has with Aslan as she sees him many years after she first saw him. And Lucy says to Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan replies, no, little one, this is because you are older. She says, not because you're actually bigger. Aslan responds, I'm not bigger. But every year that you grow, you will see me as bigger. So my hope this morning is that you will see King Jesus as bigger. That you will see something of his majesty and glory as it unfolds from this narrative, this account of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that you would respond appropriately, seeing him in his glory. Well, where are we at in the Gospel of John? Kind of been dropped in here like a paratrooper. Uh, I'm not even sure actually what Pastor Mark is preaching on these days, but I'm coming in the Gospel of John, and and if I could just give you a, a summary verse of the purpose statement of the Gospel of John, he helpfully gives it to us in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, when he says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you might have life in his name. So John writes this Gospel as a propaganda document. He wants you to see Jesus and to believe in Him. And so, it's in that context that he lays out in those really first 12 chapters of the Gospel, he highlights those sign miracles that speak of who Jesus is. And then in chapters 13 through 17 is uh, this upper room discourse where Jesus is giving specific intense instructions to his own disciples and it climaxes in chapter 17 with this glorious and rich prayer that Jesus is praying on behalf of his own disciples. It's sometimes called the high priestly prayer. In fact, not that you would remember it, but the last time I was here, I preached on John 17, 24 and in, in, in this prayer, Jesus prays for his own to be with him that they may see His glory. And then right after that prayer ends, Jesus goes with His disciples to a familiar place, exiting that upper room, walking along the way. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken, 
these words, he went forth with his disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. So Jesus, walking with his disciples, comes to the brook Kidron, or as it's called in our text here, the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley was a wadi. And you all know what a wadi is. It's not that when you have a bunch of pieces of bubble gum in your mouth. Not that kind of wadi. A wadi is a riverbed. A riverbed that, that is empty during certain parts of the year, but typically during the springtime when the precipitation comes, water comes down from the hills or the mountains and flows into that riverbed. In, in, in this case, it, was, it wasn't something of a raging river. It was more like a stream or a brook that would be flowing during certain times of the year. And it's springtime, it's Passover time, and so the brook is filled with water. The wadi is filled with water. Interesting kind of historical note here is that during Passover time, as you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people came into Jerusalem because it was one of the pilgrimage feasts accompanied with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there are estimates that that there may have been somewhere 250 to 500,000 animals that would have been sacrificed during this short period of time. And as these priests uh, were involved in the the sacrifice of these animals, as, as faithful Israelites brought these animals they would let the blood run out of the back of the temple and it would run into the brook Kidron. And one Jewish historian some years after this comments that the brook would be tinged with red. And so you can just imagine, which, by the way, John, one of his burdens in the Gospel of John is to present Jesus as that Passover lamb. Remember, that's what John the Baptist says in John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 19, just after this, we're going to see that not one of Jesus' bones was broken like the Passover lamb. So here it is as as a kind of amazing historical irony. Jesus is walking with his disciples. Jesus is himself that Passover lamb, and he's treading through the brook Kidron with his disciples in Passover blood. And there he goes to a garden. John just mentions that it's a garden. We know from other gospel writers, it's commonly known as the Garden of Gethsemane, which was more like an olive orchard. And he's there, verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. Jesus had often gathered there with his disciples. So notice John, as he records this, he highlights the reality. The camera now focuses in on Judas and Judas's knowledge of this place. Remember Judas, we, we, we saw him earlier in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. He leaves that 
that uh, last supper to go and betray Jesus. And here, John specifically tells us that Judas knows the place. Why would John tell us that? Because John wants us to understand Jesus is walking into the situation eyes wide open. He's not trying to hide. He's not trying to be sneaky. He's not calling an audible. He's not throwing a change up. He's doing as he normally does. He's going to the place that he regularly frequents for prayer intentionally so that he will be arrested. He's no mere fugitive of the law. Verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now notice, firstly, there's a little star next to the word came, at least if you're using the appropriate translation of the New American Standard 95 or the Legacy Standard Bible. If you don't see a little star next to came, you need to get a new Bible. Just kidding, just kidding. But, but notice that little star there. You'll see another star in verse 4 next to the word said. You'll see another star next to said in verse 5. And what, what, what the significance of the star there is not some kind of typo that finds its way uh, in, in your English translation of the Bible. If you were to read the introduction to your translation of the Bible, again, whether it's the Legacy Standard Bible or the New American Standard Bible, you'll discover this is the, the editors, the translators, drawing your attention to what's called the historical present tense. And this is significant as you're reading, uh, especially as you're reading the Gospels, because this is the way in which the author is telling the story in the present tense so as to draw you into the scene. You know, if there's, imagine uh, somebody's telling a story at the campfire, around the campfire, and they're telling a scary story about it was dark at night, and they heard, they hear the sound of creaking. You know, it's, it's one thing to tell the story in the past tense, but they hear the sound of creaking. She gets up and walks into the kitchen. You see, as I'm telling the story in the present tense, it's drawing you into the story so that you feel like you're there. This is what John wants us to do. He wants us to be there at the scene, to hear the boots of these Roman soldiers walking by. Imagine you're there. Imagine you're awakened from your sleep. It's the middle of the night and you hear Roman soldiers walking outside your door. You peek through the window. You see their lanterns. You see their torches. You see them strapped with weapons. Your heart begins to race and pound, wondering what on earth is going on. What is so significant here? Now, a little bit of help here. Verse 3 tells us that there is a uh, what's called a, a band of soldiers, or what we see here is a Roman cohort of officers. Now, a Roman co cohort was approximately a thousand Roman soldiers. Okay? Now, it's not likely 
that the entire 1,000 Roman soldiers were there. This would be like saying the the Medina Fire Department responded to a, a fire on such and such street on Broadway. Okay. Now, it may not have been the entire fire department, every single person, every single employee of the fire department who responds. You know, there's some who are on vacation. Maybe it was just one particular fire station. I don't know if there's multiple fire stations here in Medina, but in Youngstown, you know, there's various fire stations. But but when you say, say again, Youngstown Police Department responded, it wasn't necessarily the entire uh, you know, all the employees of Youngstown Fire, uh, Youngstown Police Department. And so more than likely, though, there was there was probably some 200 to 500 Roman soldiers who were present. And we can gather that because there's different occasions we see in the Gospels when uh, when they come to apprehend the Apostle Paul, there was hundreds of Roman soldiers show up. And and for us, uh, we may read that and think like that seems like a little bit of overkill, right? You know, uh Hundreds of Roman soldiers, what would be the purpose of that? Well, again, remember the popularity of Jesus. There's a reason why they're going at night. They don't want a large gathering of people. They don't want people to see what's going on. Jesus, through his miracles, through his teachings, had gained immense popularity. And there had also been a history of riots in Israel. And especially around holy days. Especially around times where there's large gatherings of Jewish people in Jerusalem. And so Pontius Pilate is no idiot. He wants a strong presence, a strong military presence there, just in case anything gets out of hand. Notice also what they're carrying. They're carrying in verse 3, lanterns, torches, and weapons. Lights, to be able to find who they're trying to find, namely Jesus. And weapons as a show of force. Don't get in our way. Verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Imagine this large show of military force. And along with some of these other Jewish leaders, And Jesus is there with his eleven. And he steps out in front of his eleven. He goes and meets them. He meets them. He engages them. So he's standing between his eleven and this Roman military force. And he asks a question. He says, Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, also who is betraying him, was standing with them. Verse 6, so he said to them, so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now this is remarkable. Jesus asked them, whom they were seeking. This would be uh, almost the equivalent of, you know, we have Fourth Amendment rights in this country, the the rights of search and seizure, that uh, police can't just come into your home unless there's probable cause. They have to have what? A warrant. 
And usually there's a name on that warrant. There's specifications of what can be searched. Well, I don't know the, all, all the details of Roman law during this time, but Jesus is doing something like this where he's asking whose name is on the warrant. He's making sure that he is the only one who's apprehended here. And notice there's something else going on in the passage. In verse 5, when Jesus says, I am. Now, notice, again, another translation note. If you're reading the LSB or the NASB, the he, when it says, I am he, both in verse 5 and in verse 6, is italicized. Now, we might think something is in italics for emphasis, but again, if you read that important introductory part of your translation that comes before the book of Genesis, it would explain to you that when something is italicized, this is the way of the translator telling you it's not actually there in the Greek text of the, the New Testament, but it is being supplied by the translators to supposedly, in their opinion, make it more clear or make it more understandable. But I would suggest to you they're adding the he actually obscures what's going on here. It's not there in the Greek text. Namely, Jesus is just saying, I am. And then also notice what happens when he says, I am, in verse 6. They all fall down. They all fall on their back. Something tremendously significant is going on here. Jesus, now, you're, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that there are many I am statements in the Gospel of John, right? There are I am statements. Now I'm going to throw out, I'm going to stretch your, your, your gray matter here and take you back to seventh grade English grammar. There are many I am statements with a predicate nominative. A predicate nominative is a noun that, that completes uh, a, a linking verb in a sentence. So, for instance, Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. So, bread of life is the, the nominative phrase that completes the I am statement. Or, how about John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Or, John chapter 10 and verse 10, I am the good shepherd, or I am the door, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection life, or John 15, 1, I am the true vine, or, or uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All those, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, the bread of life, all those are predicate nominatives. But then there are also times in the Gospel of John where there is no predicate nominative. There's simply, I am. For instance, in John 4, 26, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and she's talking about Messiah, Jesus says in John 4, 26, the one speaking to you, I am. That's how it literally reads in the original. The one speaking to you, I am. In John 6, 20, after Jesus had just fed the 5,000 men, maybe upwards of 20,000 people, and they want to make him king, he 
retreats and then remember his disciples go on the Sea of Galilee in front of him and there's this huge storm on the Sea of Galilee and they're getting nowhere as they're rowing and Jesus starts walking along beside them on top of the water and they think it's a ghost and he says, do not fear, I am. How about John 8, 24? Jesus says, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins and unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, 28, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am and I do nothing of myself. John 8, 58, as Jesus is engaging the Jewish religious leaders, he says to them, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you remember their response? They pick up stones to try to execute Jesus. They knew exactly what he was claiming and what he was saying when he said, I am, without any predicate nominative, simply I am. And then in John 13, 19, just hours before, Jesus prophesies that Judas, one of them, is going to betray him. And he says, from now on, I am telling you before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. He's saying, I'm prophesying this ahead of time, so that when it happens, when it goes down exactly as I say, you may know and believe that I am. So again, this this is language that goes back to the book of Isaiah and ultimately back to Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is at the burning bush and he's asking God, Yahweh, God of Israel, whom do you say, whom do I say has sent me? When I come to the Hebrews and I'm trying to deliver them out of slavery, out of Egypt, what do you want me to call you? You remember, I am that I am. And so when Jesus drops these I am statements, he's making it crystal clear that he is Yahweh in the flesh. Now, if this again, if this was an isolated instance in the Gospel of John with no other I am statements in the Gospel of John or no key laying on the uh, underneath the doormat of the Gospel of John in John 1, 1, which says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, we might be suspicious. But there's no suspicion here. It's crystal clear. Jesus is I am state. Now, every once in a while, people will say things like Jesus never claims to be God. Bunk. Garbage. He couldn't have been more clear. And then also notice again what happens as he unveils this deity before them. These Roman soldiers, this show of military force, they all fall to the ground. Jesus is showing who is in charge here. He's making everybody understand that he will go along with the program because he wants to. He could put them all on their backs take his 11 and walk right out of the garden if he so pleased. But that is not what he pleased. Verse 7. Therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, 
Let these go their way. And then John explains in verse 9, in order that the word which he spoke would be fulfilled of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Jesus has an agenda here. We'll talk a little bit more about that agenda in a minute. But Jesus is making sure that the 11 do not get arrested at this point. He's making sure that he's the only one who gets incarcerated. And then the camera focuses in on Peter. Good old Simon Peter. Verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear and the slave's name was Malchus. So Peter's packing. He's got his concealed carry blade and he pulls it out. And and now I, I wonder, and maybe one day I'll get to ask Peter, what was going through your mind? I don't know if he thought, you know, he was going to be like, Super Mario and eat an olive in the garden there and all of a sudden have the superpower and take on these hundreds of Roman soldiers. But he starts swinging. And he evidently misses Malchus's head and lops off his ear. And I can't prove this, by the way, but I tend to think the gospel writers, when they name drop, they name drop to the churches that they're writing to. Remember, John is writing this decades after Jesus' life and death and resurrection to churches that the churches knew the name, especially when it's obscure people. It's one thing if it's Pontius Pilate. Of course, everybody knew who Pontius Pilate. But Malchus, the high priest slave? I tend to think Malchus became known in the church many years later. A convert. Can't prove it, but wouldn't it make sense? And so, oh, and by the way, Luke records that Jesus got rid of the evidence. He put Malchus's ear back on his head. And by the way, notice the specificity of eyewitness testimony, his right ear. His right ear. John was there. He saw the ear hit the ground, and he saw Jesus put it back on his head. But then notice very instructively, verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus has a plan. Peter, trying to defend Jesus is breaking from that plan. As Peter often did. Remember in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus tells Peter and the other 11 that he's going to the cross. Peter rebukes Jesus and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so what, what do we take away from this? We certainly see Jesus is the sovereign Savior. He's in complete control in this situation. He is no mere victim. 
He is a willing participant. They will arrest him because he wills to be arrested. So what do we learn? Because Jesus is the sovereign Savior, first of all, let us revel in his patient power. Let us revel in his patient power. You see, we see his power on display here, do we not? We see his power on display as he demonstrates to those Roman soldiers and all who are present, he's in complete control. He will paralyze them and put them on their backs if he wants to. He will walk out of that garden as a free man if he wants to. That he has tremendous power at his disposal, but he's being patient, even though they're unjustly arresting him, even though they're unlawfully accusing him, even though they're going to bring all these false witnesses. He's restraining that power to do the Father's will. Stephen Charnock in his uh, classic book, The Existence and Attributes of God, it's like two volumes, I think at least a thousand pages on all these different attributes of God. And in his section on the patience of God, I remember reading, he says that God's patience is the greatest demonstration of his power. I thought to myself, well, that's a strange statement. And then he argues that it's the greatest demonstration of his power because it's his power over his power. It's his power over the most powerful being in existence, namely himself. I thought, well, that's pretty compelling. Certainly here we see Jesus, who tells Peter, the other gospels record, says, Peter, don't you know that I could call down 12 legions of angels in the snap of my fingers? This one who created Enough food to feed thousands of people. This one who raised Lazarus from the dead, who has infinite power at his disposal as the God-man in the flesh. He demonstrates tremendous patience, patience in not unleashing his wrath upon these Roman soldiers and these hypocritical Jewish leaders. Alexander McLean says, I'm inclined to think here that there was for a moment a little rending of the veil of his flesh. He's talking about when, when Jesus says, I am, and they all fall down. An emission of some flash of brightness that always tabernacled within him that was enough to prostrate with strange awe even these rude and insensitive men, talking about the Roman soldiers. And when he said, I am, there was something that made them feel this is one before whom violence cowers abashed and whose presence and purity has to hide its face. This is the patient power of King Jesus that we must revel in. Friends, do you ever wonder how God can endure such railing against Him. As we see in our world today, just everything just bonkers out there. Defying Almighty God. Defy, people trying to defy 
the reality of how God has created them. People trying to make themselves their own gods. And you think, Lord, have mercy upon this country. You think of God's impending wrath that that sits ready to be unleashed. But what is it that holds that back? It is His patience. So my friend, if you're sitting here and if you're not yet reconciled to this Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand the only thing that stands between you and His infinite and unending wrath is His own will to preserve you and to keep back His wrath and power from unleashing upon you and making you an eternal monument of His righteous justice. So my friend, Think about it. Jesus is standing between his own and his enemies. Which side of Jesus are you on? Are you behind Jesus as those protected sheep? Or are you the wolves that he's protecting his own again? Don't be on the wrong side of Jesus. Revel in his patient power. But secondly, rest in his protective power. Rest in his protective power. Notice in verse 7, therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am so that if you seek me, let these, who's the these? His 11 who were behind him in order. Again, very important. Verse 9, in order that the word which he had spoken would be fulfilled. Notice just this is kind of an aside here, but notice the way in which John puts Jesus' words on the same level as the Old Testament prophets here. The word that he spoke would be fulfilled of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. What's going on here is Jesus is making sure that they only arrest him because he knows that if his 11 were arrested, it would be too much for them to bear. That they would turn away from him. They would apostatize. Jesus is playing the same role that he plays in chapter 17 when he's praying for them a high priestly prayer. He is being their high priest. He's interceding for them. He's mediating for them to guarantee that they stay in the fold. We say, what passages does he say that he would lose not one of all that the Father had given him? Well, John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Then he says, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus promises that all those given by the Father to the Son as a love gift, he is going to lay down his life and make sure not one is lost. And so, yes, Jesus was protecting specifically the eleven But it's far broader than that because the 11 were part of those given ones which includes all of God's elect people throughout history. This is similarly laid out in John chapter 10 and verse 28. 
with that discourse about the good shepherd and his sheep. He says, I give them, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what's going on here in John chapter 18. He's ensuring that the 11 continue in the faith. Again, just even think about Peter when he's confronted just later on this chapter by a little girl. He denies Jesus. Jesus knows their weakness. He knows that their faith is but a smoldering wick that you could just blow out so easy. And so he protects that smoldering wick and makes sure that it stays lit. John 17, 11, as Jesus is praying, same language here of these given ones that he would lose none. He says, Holy Father, he's praying for, for his own. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. And then verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. You see even how he clarifies? He's saying not one of them was lost. And don't tell me Judas, because he was the son of perdition. That was all part of the plan. He wasn't one of those given ones. Because all those given, I will keep. John 17, 15 then says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Remember the next line? But that you keep them from the evil one. So this high priestly office that we sung of earlier, before the throne of God above, I have a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love who intercedes for me. My name is written on his hands. This is the high priest that we sung about. He protects his own. The French reformer who famously resided in Geneva, Jean Calvin, said the evangelist is not merely, is not speaking merely of their bodily life, talking about the 11, when it says that this was to fulfill that he would lose not one, but means that Christ, sparing them for a time, provided for their eternal salvation. Consider how great their weakness was. What do we think that they would have done alone if brought to the test? Christ did not choose that they should be tried beyond the strength he had given and rescued them from eternal destruction. Oh, my dear child of God, you need to rest in the protective power of this sovereign Savior. If you could lose your salvation, you would. And to think that you could and you haven't is the height of arrogance. But you are kept not because the strength of your own will, your own resolve, you are kept because there's one standing at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. 
He is a great Savior who protects all of his own. Not one will be lost. Not one. Not one. All will safely arrive in eternal glory to see this Lord Jesus in his glory, the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. All will cross the finish line. Not one man, not one woman, not one boy, not one girl who had been given by the Father to the Son will be left behind. I live in the city. I was raised in the city of Youngstown. It's an old Rust Belt town if you're not familiar with it. And uh, but the last couple of years with the Biden inflation program, it has gotten me trying to be a little bit more independent of grocery stores and things like that. So, you know, you start planting a garden. I now have chickens, 15 chickens. And this past spring. We bought some chicks to add to our collection. And if you know anything about raising chickens, uh, you, you got to keep the little ones separate from the big ones. And so we, we had our, our six little chicks kind of uh, separated inside the pen, away from, protected from the, the, the other larger chickens. But unfortunately, I woke up one morning to go out there and make sure my chicks had food and water to find four chicks without their heads. The raccoon cartel showed up. I saw them on my surveillance camera and broke into the coop and so I went and tried to secure, make sure the pen was, there was no holes where the raccoons could get in. Next morning, wake up, Two more headless chicks. Finally discovered there was an open hatch in the coop. I had to secure it, put a cinder block on top of it, make sure they weren't getting in. I lost six chicks. Jesus is not like me and my chicken farming. The diabolical satanic raccoon cartel cannot come and take your head off. He protects all of his own. He makes sure they're safe and secure and they will end up. And friend, you know what it's like to, to live in this fallen, broken world with all the temptations of sin around you and sometimes you feel like you're, you're walking around a campfire with, with rags hanging out of your pockets that have been dipped in gasoline and they're just ready to ignite and set you on fire as the, the temptations of this world bombard you. But I want to tell you, the Lord Jesus will keep you. He will keep you. Martin Luther wrote in that hymn who think he knew something about spiritual warfare and conflict and opposition. He says, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. 
And the battle is for your souls. As Satan wants to drag as many people to hell with him as he can, Jesus will win the battle. And all those who are purchased by the blood of the Lamb will make it to glory. His protective power. But not only to revel in His patient power, rest in His protecting power, thirdly, wrestle in His perfect process. What do I mean by that? Notice Notice in verse 10 and 11, this, this exchange, this happening that Peter pulls out his sword, having a sword, he drew it, strikes the high priest's slave, cuts off his right ear. Verse 11, Jesus says, put the sword into the sheath. And, and this is instructive for us. That Jesus is telling Peter, put the blade back in the sheath. This is not how we advance the kingdom. And we know that because of what Jesus says later on as he's interacting with Pilate. Remember as Pilate says, so you are a king? Tell me about this. Pilate himself being under the kingship of Caesar. And in John 8.36, Jesus answered, my kingdom, you remember, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting and I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here. Jesus is saying is, my kingdom operates differently than the kingdoms of this world. My kingdom will not advance on the back of a sword. Kingdom will advance through the message of the gospel. To put it plainly, you and I ain't Muslims. Islam, its history has always advanced with this. Submit to Allah or I'll take your head off. People say, I like my head. Okay. Allah Akbar. But that's not how Christianity advances. Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. I, I am not a pacifist. I mean, after all, we are in a veterans hall here. We have our, you know, military branches, different flags here. And and, and believe me, I you know, I believe I believe in our Second Amendment rights. I believe I, I should be able to protect my family and myself. But I also believe what Jesus is saying here, namely, that this kingdom functions in a different way. The church has no place to take up arms. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on the Gospel of John says, this, is the this was the language of firm and decided rebuke. It was meant to teach Peter and all Christians in every age that the Gospel is not to be propagated or maintained by carnal weapons or by smiting and violence. And Matthew adds the solemn words, all they that take up the sword shall perish by the sword. 
no place for that. We must use, we must wrestle with the weapons that Christ gives us. Preach the gospel, pray, build relationships with unbelievers, seek to speak the truth and love to them. But not only to revel in his patient power, rest in his protecting power, wrestle in his perfect process, lastly, to rest in his propitious purpose. That's a mouthful. And if I could add, rest in his precious Propitious purpose. I mean, this is clear throughout this text, right? Jesus goes to the garden knowing that Judas, whom he knows is going to betray him, knows that he's going there. Yet he willfully goes there. Jesus told Peter to put the sword away. Jesus, by putting these Roman soldiers on their backs, but then walking along with them with hands shackled, probably ankles shackled, is demonstrating that he's a willing participant, that something great is going on here. And we find out what that is in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? What is the cup? Well, the imagery of the cup all throughout the Bible, really from Genesis to Revelation is an allusion to the cup of God's wrath, the pouring out of his wrath. Listen to Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send it to you to drink it. Isaiah 51, verse 22. uh, For thus says Yahweh, even your God who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my wrath, you will never drink it again. We see this language in the other Gospels. In in Gethsemane, as the other Gospel writers record, Jesus praying, Father, if it's possible, let this, what? Cup pass from me. We see it in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 14, where where it speaks of the the cup of the wrath of uh, of Almighty God, unmixed, undiluted, not watered down. So when Jesus says to Peter, put the sword back, shall I not drink the Father's cup? He's alluding to the reality that he's about to go to the cross. That this is part of the plan for him to drink the cup of God's wrath. God's judgment. Not because he is a sinner. Not because he has done any evil deeds, but because all those given to him by the Father have done the evil deeds and their sins need to be paid for. Matthew Henry remarks, when the people would have forced him to take a crown and wish to make him a king, he withdrew and hid himself in John 6.15. But when they came to force him to the cross, he offered himself. He came to this world to suffer. This is what we see here. He didn't have to be arrested. He didn't have to go to cross. He could have done whatever he wanted to, but he chose to do it. Why did he choose to do it? For you. For me. For the Father and His glory. This was part of the plan. 
that not one of all that the Father had given him would be lost. And so it was necessary that he lay down his life on behalf. And so what we see here is that on the cross, he is taking the cup of God's wrath so that somehow in the mystery of the Trinity and the wonder of the incarnation of the God-man, when he is suspended between heaven and earth for those three hours on that Good Friday, he was bearing in his body all the punishment of hell of every believer who would ever believe was taking, was, he was taking upon his back. He was drinking every last drop of the cup of God's wrath so that there would not be one drop left for you to drink. Not any punishment reserved for you. Because he took it all. What a Savior. What a mighty Savior. J.C. Ryle comments, we have a Savior who is more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. If we were not saved, the fault is all our own. Christ is just as willing to receive and pardon as He was willing to be taken prisoner to bleed and die. So I, I, I plead with you, if you're sitting here, young person, as you're thinking about these realities, turn to Christ. He is a great Savior. All that the Father gives Him will come to Him. And the one who comes to him, he will not cast out. He will not shoo you away. You need somebody to drink the cup for you. You need somebody to bear the judgment for you. Or else you bear it yourself for all eternity. Turn to Christ, my friend. Don't delay. And for those who, of us who have turned to Christ and are trusting in him, rest in his precious Propitious purpose. He willingly was arrested to take that cup for you. For you. Oh, it was love that would drive him to do that. Oh, my friend, there is no one like this. We sang it earlier. What a friend we have in Jesus. Is the brother told the story of the man who several fiancés dying. Like, could you imagine the heartache, the heartbreak of experiencing that? But there is one whose love is unbreakable. Who, yes, died, but rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. And we can have an eternal relationship with him. Such a Savior is worth giving your life you're all for. Let me close with the story that Joel Beakey tells of a wealthy Englishman who traveled all the way to California in the 1850s during the gold rush and was able to, to gather an extremely large amount of gold. He was already wealthy. And on his way back from that trip, he stopped in Louisiana. In New Orleans. And as all tourists often did at that time. He visited the famous slave trading block. As he approached the place where slaves were auctioned off for cash. He saw this young beautiful African woman there. 
And he listened to two young men snickering and talking about the things they would do with this young, beautiful girl were they able to purchase her. This wealthy Englishman overheard these two men. And when the bidding start, started, to their surprise, the Englishman joined in the bidding. And he offered twice as much as any of the other bidders. The auctioneer was astonished. He said, no one has ever offered this much for a slave. The auction was finalized and the Englishman won that bid, outbidding others doubly. And he stepped forward to get her. And when he stepped forward and when she stepped down to his level, she spit in his face. He wiped away the spit off of his face and led her to building another part of town where she watched uncomprehendingly as he filled out those forms. To her astonishment, he handed her some manumission papers to set her free. And the rich Englishman said, Here you are. You're now a free woman. On him again. Don't you understand? He asked as he wiped the spit away again from his face. You're free! You're free! She stared at him in disbelief for a long while. And then she fell down at his feet with tears streaming down her face. She finally looked up and asked, She said, sir, is it really true that you paid more than anyone has ever paid to purchase me as a slave only to set me free? Yes, he said calmly. The woman continued sobbing. She finally then looked up and spoke to the man. Sir, I have only one request. Can I be your slave forever? proper response to such a high price that Christ has paid for us. Such precious costly blood that he shed willfully for your freedom, for mine. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this glorious Christ. May he be seen as bigger in our eyes now that we've seen him just a little bit more from John chapter 18. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.